Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I mean, it's got a lot to fight. I had my darn window net up, and he was trying to pull it out, and I was pushing it in. You can't pay judges off like you could back then. They said, we're going to keep restricting you till we get you back to them. When you go in the third corner there, I want you to drive that much deeper. I said, I can't do it. I guess you're right. You couldn't drive it no deeper. Y'all want to talk some more? The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. And first off this week, listeners, you are probably going to be hearing at least a little bit of background noise in this episode that wouldn't ordinarily be there. Steve, in the last 18 months at our house, we have put new gutters on the house. We've had a new drainage system put in place. We've had a new septic tank put in. We had an old dilapidated building torn down. And right now at this very moment, workers are finishing up putting a new shower and flooring in our master bedroom. Our old shower leaked and damaged some of the flooring. And I got to tell you, it's a wonder we didn't wind up in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rick, what you've said leads me to only one conclusion. You must live in a dump. <laughs> it's just that we live in an older house and it had been starting to show its age a little bit. And you say it's a dump. No, it ain't a dump. It's going to be a palace here in just a little while. When we renovation, get renovation, that is a very good thing, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, it's only money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. And it's I only know, money. I know partially what you're, what you're going through, that's for sure. I've been living in houses ever since I was, what, out of college. So I have dealt with the kind of things that you're dealing with right now. Well, I don't think it exactly helps matters that Jeannie is now retired <laughs> and looking for things to do. <laughs> but seriously, the drainage especially and the bathroom yeah, it needed fixing. So like I said, it's only money and we got one leaving for college in the fall. Yeah. <laughs> Just shoveling money out the door. So he's going to college, huh? Well, I'll tell you what, you're about to find out what shoveling money is really all about. <laughs> Thank you for that piece of encouragement there, Steve. <laughs> and while we're talking about numbers, let's try this number on for size. With this week's episode, we should go over 300,000 total lifetime downloads for the Scene Vault podcast. Unbelievable. Incredible. When you and I first started this podcast, I think both of us were really wondering if anybody would ever listen. And I remember when we were getting, I don't know, 50 to 100 downloads. And then we got up to maybe two or 300 downloads per week. Oh yeah. We thought that was great, <laughs> but slowly, but surely 
we have built that audience. And Steve, I am continually amazed by the response we get. I don't know, man. It is absolutely humbling. Well, I'll tell you what, it's very gratifying, Rick. And uh, I commend you for your idea behind this podcast. I was very happy to, to get on board. And like you, I really never thought we'd really be as big as we have gotten. And we have the listeners to thank for that. Really do. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that we're anywhere near Joe Rogan numbers or anything like that. But oh, no. <laughs> well, no. But you never know what might happen next. So honestly, I think the cool thing about our show is that each interview that we do and the conversations that we have about the scene issues of the week are pretty much what we would call in journalism evergreen pieces. They're good and they're relevant whenever you listen to them. So they're not necessarily dated to any one race that's going on now. So no, no matter when you listen to them, they're good. Yeah, that's that's the point, Rick. Uh, and I agree with you that this is more of a show about conversations. This is not a hard-hitting news show. We've said that before. But I think the conversations that we have with the people we have had them with are, first, are evergreen, like you say. But second of all, they provoke such memories in listeners that I think that they have fun with it. And that means a lot. I was looking at the numbers yesterday, and I think it's pretty cool that even now people are going back and listening to the shows when we very first started. Now there's not a lot of downloads per week for those very first shows, but they are still listening to them nearly three years later. So I think that's pretty outstanding. I agree. I think that's terrific. It's it shows that what you said earlier is very true. You can listen to any podcast at any time and just find it totally interesting. I like that. Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to finish up the interview with Ronnie Thomas, although I'm not quite sure any interview with Ronnie Thomas is ever <laughs> finished. <laughs> you just kind of get to a stopping point and see what happens. <laughs> well, as you know, Rick, you came back to us two or three more times after it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week, Ronnie does talk about a little run-in that he had with the law there in Christiansburg. And he also talks a good bit about his time running late model stocks. I would describe that run-in with the Christiansburg law a little bit more than a run-in. <laughs> <laughs> well, then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the April 9th, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene. That issue featured coverage of Richard Petty's win at North Wilkesboro, Dave Marcus's poll run. And Steve, I didn't know this when I picked up this issue. But this race was the very first race of Mark Martin's Winston Cup career. He was striking out on his own in Winston Cup racing, and uh, he did make some very, very good runs. But that season overall was not really a very good experience for him. Well, Steve, you know who built the car that he was driving that day? Will Cronkite. How about that? I did not know that. (laughs) Oh, how about that? There's a connection. Steve, there was also this really big splashy story about some character by the name of Steve Wade being named the executive editor of Grand National Scene. That was one of the reasons I came to Grand National Scene. I demanded a big splashy story to announce my arrival. (laughs) Well, here I am getting beat up on YouTube (laughs) for making a story about me. And here's a story that's all about you complete with a 200-point headline and a photo 
Although I'm not too sure why they ran a picture of Donald Sutherland <laughs> with your story. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Rick, talking about yourself is nothing. Talking about me now, that's a major news story that deserves a lot of attention. <laughs> and Donald Sutherland, yeah, I got called Donald Sutherland plenty of times. I remember one time landing in the Los Angeles airport on my way to a race in Riverside. And this guy stopped me as soon as I got off the plane. And he said, you're Donald Sutherland. I said, no, sir, I am not Donald Sutherland. He followed me to all the way to baggage claim. And I finally autographed his ticket. And while I was autographing, I was thinking the real Donald Sutherland is going to show up any minute. And I'm in real trouble here. Well, I was going to ask what it was like to be in the movie Hunger Games. <laughs> What's Jennifer Lawrence really like? <laughs> I promised her I would never tell. <laughs> Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from John Cutright, Mike Panter, Larry Spencer III, and Christopher Root. Now, Larry Spencer, who is from Pennsylvania, does that ring a bell, Steve? Yes, it does. Larry Spencer III is the cousin of the one and only Mr. Excitement, Jimmy Spencer. How about that? And don't think that I haven't been trying to work that connection. (laughs) (laughs) But so far, no dice. (laughs) We're trying. Yeah, Jim's a hard guy to track down. We also have increased support from Michael Corvin. And Michael sent me a message that said that he had recently quit smoking after 30 years and that he was sending us some of the money that he wasn't spending on cigarettes. So we've got beer money from Paul Friedrich and we've got cigarette money from Michael Corvin. I wonder what other vices we might be able to collect on (laughs) and we better move on quick. (laughs) I'd say so. (laughs) So seriously, listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support us on Patreon. That address is patreon.com. That's P A T. R E O N dot com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. When did you make the decision that your cup career was over? Right. And you were going to go to Lake Mile. Was there one specific event? Yes. Okay. Barnesville Speedway. All right. We missed a show. It was about five or six. By the time we'd make, we missed a show. It was like 86, something like that. Now, is that the one you were talking about earlier? No, that was at Charlotte. Okay. All right. Okay. This was, and I was sitting it the same way. And I just said, okay, of course, that's local for us, you know, yeah, 88 yeah. miles away. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting there and I told Marshall, I said, I just cannot, I ain't doing this. I said, it's just, I can't handle it anymore. So to make long story short, we did go a few more races. Um, So 88, they opened a track up here. Steve McMurray built it, Pulaski County Speedway, which is now Motor Mile Speedway. So 87, there was a driving school. I can't remember, fast track or something. Buck Uh, Baker? No, one Buck Buck Baker's another one, I thought. Buck may have been involved in it, but I think they called it Fast Track. This guy comes calls up, and he said, you want to get out? And I said, yeah, and he said, I'll buy you a car and some of your stuff. And it was like 
I don't know, 87. I said, okay. So I done bought a car off of Jody Ridley. Actually, I got it from Butch Stevens, BSR Products at the mm-hmm. time. And it was an old Jody Ridley ASA car, and we went down Franklin County here in 86, 87. We run, I don't know, eight or ten races. Well, I go down there, and then all of a sudden, here I am. Uh, Franklin County Speedway, a lot of people don't know, that's a rough-cut place, buddy. I mean, they down there, they're drunk, fighting, <laughs> throwing stuff at each other. I mean, this is I've like, been there. You've been there. Right. It's a rough place. Back. I don't know how it is now, but back then it was rough. So we go down there, and we're winning races, doing good. I'm like, well, I didn't win a race. We didn't run but eight or ten. I crashed out in three of them, got crashed out. So this guy, it's going to be a funny story. You're going to like this. A guy by the name of Six Pack Cundiff, Rodney Cundiff. <laughs> he owned a truck, and he's passed away uh, a couple years ago, but he was one of the top drivers down there. I go down there. I had that old Ridley car. It was a Howl car, and it was a three or four length car and was trying to learn how to work with it. And a guy by the name of Hal built cars. I called him, said, what am I doing wrong on this car? And he said, forget everything you did on that heavy car. You got to relearn. So he told me what to do. We go down there trying to change her thinking. I go down there and we sit on the pole. We got crashed. First lap, a guy turned me. Come back a couple weeks later, fixed the car. Go down there and we finished second. Come back next week. We qualified fourth, and this was back when it would be like 20, 25 cars. I only three-eighths mile track. Yeah. And you're in Chubby Arrington, Joe Thurman, all them guys down there, Bobby Radford, Paul Radford run there. Go down there, and I said, man, and uh, go down there, and we qualified fourth. Race starts, run a couple laps, and, man, I had a good car. And I said, we got a winning car. Go down there and run about second lap. Six pack, and this guy, you got I'm not exaggerating. This guy was six three, six four, probably weighed 240, about 100 pounds of it was muscle, wasn't fat like me. Go down there, and I bump him going in three. Uh, he was run third when I hit, I barely touched him. He went up a track, I went around him for third. Harry Gant, I think, was there, and Ray Huff, he was a pretty tough driver. They wrecked. Rick coming out of the fourth corner, went up against the wall, and one of them's car caught on fire. Of course, they stopped everybody on the front stretch to get, I don't remember if it was Harry or Ray Huff getting out. That's when Daryl and Bobby and Harry would do them little late Pam to come and do those little special events to get fans in. Again, I get out, and here comes, I look, and sitting in the car, and I see six-pack getting out of his car. Look up in the mirror. And, I mean, people exaggerate. This guy was... He wasn't a tree. He was a mini tree. But, I mean, this guy was big. He come out, and the dad blamed me. I seen him coming up there, and I said, what the crap? Comes up, man, he's thinking, he said, I'm going to whoop your A, you know what, Thomas. I went, what? He said, I'm going to beat your, I mean, this guy liked to fight. I had my darn window net up, and he was trying to pull it out, and I was pushing it in. <laughs> he, he was, so I'm sitting there, and I go, and I said, this guy's going to kill me. Y'all get over here. Freaking guys over there, they wouldn't come down, my guys. I guess they said, no, we're not getting in the middle of it. So he's trying to get it down. He sticks in there, and he said, sticks his head in there. Now, we got to be friends later, good friends. Sticks his head in there. He said, you think because you run Winston Cup, you're something. You ain't no better than us. I said, I don't think like that six-pack. I don't. He said, I'm going to whip your so-and-so. And he was trying to jerk it out, the window net. And I said, I'm going to do you a favor. What? 
I said, you tell everybody you whipped it, and I'll tell everybody you whipped it and save you from, save you from doing it. <laughs> Honest to God, this guy looks at me, and he turns and walks off and goes back and gets in his car. Of course, we sat there a little while. They got cleaned up. His crew guy told me after the race come down there, he said he has never had anybody do that. And I said, what? He said, he likes to tangle. I said, you think I'm friggin' stupid? I said, that guy would have killed me. He come in. I said, my guy's up there. They wouldn't come down here. So, But we got to be... We go to the next week, the shot, to show you what a, how things are. The next week, we broke the shock mount off the right front. We went in the corner car, dropped bouncing around. Go over and I said, oh, Lordy. See, then we go to Ronald, which one 15 minutes away, find a welder. Six packs crew chief comes down and he said, go right across the street, I'm going over there. I welded off around. I said, what? Loaded on the truck. We went right across the street or near the track and there was a garage, had a stick welder then. Darren guy cleaned that thing off, stick welded, pulled it back track. I said, how much are you? don't owe me nothing. And then on, we was best friends. But now see there, how it shows you. Now, if I'd got out and fought him, well, I'd have got hurt, first thing. <laughs> but second thing, we end up being good friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just I, funny how things go. But that's a funny strong six-pack. The only other question that I know that I wanted to ask about is. Ah, here we go. I know at one point I was going through Grand National Scene and I came across a story where you had gotten, I think you'd gotten a ticket for driving your race car around Christiansburg or wherever you were at the time. So tell me about that. Well, I'm going to tell you, we're a half a mile from the shop. Y'all pass coming in, it's an old garage, it's still there, it's rough shape, but it's still in operation. It got blown out of proportion. I let. Oh, blame I, it on the media. Well, it was. Me and Jared thought this was the funniest thing. I don't know. I got to racetrack and I said, there are people who know more about it than I do. I don't know. You didn't have no internet all this hey, stuff then. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Well, what I did, I went down towards Floyd, Route 8. When I say I went towards Floyd, I literally went two miles down the road. Of course, it was in town. I go a couple miles down the road. I was setting a car up for Bristol, and we was up at this old gas station. Kept We stayed up there two or three years. So I just, I told the guy, I said, let me start up, and I'll go hit brakes, you know, park a lot, hit them, come up, you know, get the car set up. I said, heck, I'll just drive it right down the street. <laughs> I just go down about a mile or two and turn around. Well, I turned around, guess what? Met a darn town cop. I said, oh, crap. <laughs> so... Man, naturally, he throws the lights on. I fly back to the shop. I said, dang, that lot would impound my car. So I come back shopping. I want a mile, maybe a mile or two miles from the shop, which is technically a long ways to have a race car on the highway. But I want an airbag like I went to Floyd, which is 30 miles away. Pull in the service station. These two cops pull in, two of them in the car then. They get out. They knew me. He looked at me, and I, never, I remember like yours, they said, what are you doing? And I mean, really, he's like, are you stupid? I mean, he was being serious. He said, man, you know what kind of repercussions? And I, yeah, I said, I just shy. I don't care what you're doing. You don't get on. So we're sitting there, and he said, y'all ain't going to do nothing to me. I'm going to go write you a ticket. This guy wrote this ticket. It was illegal tires, illegal saw system, no inspection sticker, no wipers. <laughs> and he said, I can really make it run. It was eight or ten things on it, and I had to pay fine. But the next two days after that, in the Run Oak Times, 
and somebody put in there said because there was a lot of comments being made everywhere about it so many people think that's funny if he'd uh, hit me or one of my kids with that race car down the road so he made it sound like i was running 100 mile an hour and literally i was probably running 40 mile an hour i didn't go fast in the car and so i get to the track next thing i know here comes ned jarrett it's the funniest thing ned jarrett said i heard about your escapade and i went huh and he said took that race car down the main road didn't you and i said well wasn't that far Next thing I know is in friggin' Run Oak Times. And uh, I'm telling you that. Grand still, National Scene. Yeah, I still got, I still got the write up. It said uh, Thomas wakes up Christiansburg with late night annex or something. I still got the write up on his funny thing, but it, it made it a lot worse than what it was. But yeah, I, did, I went down the road a little ways in. But God, you do something like it now, they probably, I don't know, it's yeah. seriously. Yeah. You you can't pay judges off like you could back then. <laughs> well, I guess I guess it probably still goes on. <laughs> Wait a minute, I, I, I touched the nerve that I, I forgot. <laughs> Slipped up. How do you think I got the money to come up here? <laughs> that's your gas money. Yeah, that's my gas money. All right. Um, I think that's about all I had. Yeah. About, I think we were after that. We yeah, better that's, stop. That's good. That's good. You can't get no better than that, Ronnie. <laughs> all right. You got anything else, man? I don't know. I just. Lord, we do. Hey, now I just I want to tell you. Well, y'all go edit what we don't want, right? Yeah, we well, yeah, what y'all don't. I'll tell you. This is one for people that has never got to drive cup cars. Our bush cars, our trucks, some's never even got to run late models or mini stocks. But there's this one particular driver, Ray Huff, ran this area. He's passed away, but I mean, he won a lot of races at Franklin County. He was the first track champion up here in 88 at Pulaski. Super nice guy. And uh, he come up to me. We won the race at Martinsville in March of 89, the late model stock race. He comes up to me the next week, or a couple weeks later, at, we was signed in at Pulaski. He come over to me, and he made me realize something. He told me, he said, I got to tell you something, Ron. That's what he said. I always said I used to go and watch cup races. And I have told people with me more than once, I said, I can run faster than he can in that car. I used to say about it and said, man, you out there running 25th. I can run that car in the top 15, top 10, top 20. That's what you probably could. I don't know how long you lasted. You're going to blow up. What are you going to do? You come in, you're going to have to you can put old tires on, so you're going to slow up three tenths. That's the way it is, right? He said, no, I didn't mean it that way. He said, what I mean is, I didn't realize until last year that I run against you in four or five races. And did we win them all? No, but we won more than our fair share and we run against a lot of top name drivers and as an average we would outrun not more times than not we would beat a lot of the people he come up and told me he said i didn't i said i didn't think he's that great but in the last year or two i found out something you gotta have the equipment i used to think and i said but look at it in lake model you got guys up here that's running 20th they got junk cars they can't do no better they're doing the best they can the the thing I couldn't figure out in the late model though is Jack Ingram asked me to drive. I'll show you how things change. Jack Ingram come up to me in ninety 
five or six, he had a brown number 11 skull car. And I don't know, was he running? I don't even know if he's still running Bush or what he was running. Maybe he's running Lake Mall. I don't, but anyway, his crew guy was with him. I'm out there practicing. This is when you know you've made it in Lake Bala. This guy come up and he said, Jack wants to know if you'll run his car a little bit for him. I said, sure. And I'm like, I told uh, Ronnie Kelly's with him, and I said, that's pretty friggin' cool. I mean, a lot of people didn't like Jack Ingram. Jack Ingram was a tough rascal. I mean, he just didn't take no, you know, prisoners. And said, yeah, and I go down, Jack. Jack said, take this thing out. And he used to tell me what it was. I think he said it was a, a front steer Laughlin car, I believe. But anyway, he said, it's this, it's that. And I said, okay. And he said, truck arm, I want you to take it out and see what you think about it. I go out and, you know, and he said, now run it. And I said, I'm going to run it. And so I got it out there and, and now, Jack was good. I don't know how old Jack was in the mid-90s, but, God, he was, had to be, what, in his 60s? Well, he was, run, he was retired from Bush yeah. by that time in the mid-90s. He, I think his last year in Bush was 92. He's in his 80s now, isn't he? Now? I think. Yeah. 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 So he would have been. So that would have been uh, less than much. It would have been close to yeah. 70. Yeah, close to 70. So I get in a car, and I go out and run at eight or ten laps, and I come in, Jack and his crew guy sticks her head in there and he said, What's it doing? I said, The car's good, get in, it's good. Y'all need to y'all need to free it up in the center. He said, exactly what Jack said. Huh. And old Jack said, You got it right, boy, you look good. I said, Well, let's track I run out a lot. And he said, That's what I wanted to know. And I thought, Yeah, come from Jack Ingram. And you know, I just thought it's funny, you know, his crew guy said, and Jack said exactly what I told him. But I run a little quicker than Jack. But you got to realize Jack was probably getting on up there. Yeah. But I always thought then I said, man, you know, and it'd be people at, you know, North Carolina. Uh, you want to drive my car? Guy Jimmy Hensley drove for at Wilkesboro the next year said, you want to drive my car? And I'm like, Clarence Pickle, 26. You want to drive my car? And here was the problem. I was running so good in my car, I wouldn't drive nobody else. And I probably. And when Clarence asked me to drive his car, I probably should have went on and drove it just to say I drove it because, you know, Jeff Agnew and Paul Radford and uh, what's his name down Ruckerville, uh, Philip Morris. And you got a lot of people, champions, that drove that car. I'm thinking, I should have drove it just to say I drove it. It's so good in my own stuff. It's yeah. kind of hard driving. I got to, you're talking about Cub, and they were messing with me. I go to these tracks, next thing I know, we're putting 50 pounds on you. What? When a partner said, uh, we'd run four, right? We won three out of four, and the other one, we would have won it, but the guy turned me around, or we'd won it, and they said, had a meeting with me. We went on Monday after the race, and the truck promoter said, uh, we're slowing you down. And I went, what? And they said, we're putting, uh, we're going to put 25 pounds on the left. I put 25 pounds on the left, I go and win a race. Next week, they said, we're putting 25 on the right. Well, we didn't win, we finished second. So we go up the next race and we win. They said, we're going to put 25 more pounds on the left side. And I said, so in other words, y'all going to keep restricting us 
They said, we're going to keep restricting you till we get you back to them. And I told guys, the so next thing I know, they went on that year. We won, we won 11 or 12 races. We went to Martinsville. Of course, they let us take away that. We said we didn't win a race. We did sit on the pole. Uh, we go to Wilkesboro. We finished second. Uh, we're just still doing good everywhere. And then uh, about a year or two later, we go back. We're winning. They said, we're going to make you put a smaller carburetor on. Well, let me tell you what I mean about, about the carburetor. Now, we're talking about late models. So cut people may not get this, but a lot of late model people watch these things. They slowed me down. We had a Chrysler. Here, Chubby Arrington, a lot of people don't know Chubby Arrington, but Joe Thurman and Rumley and Tink Reedy, you've had a lot of names that drove for Chubby Arrington over here. Paul Radford, they had a Dodge. Six Pack had a Ford. Rumley was driving a Ford, I think, Johnny Rumley. I mean, for somebody else. They're doing all this stuff. They come up, I mean, all these people run these Fords. There's a lot of Chevrolets, but it's quite a few Fords and crotches up there, they make me put a smaller carburetor. It took about 20 horsepower out of it. When you ain't got but 375, you take 25 as a lot. It ain't like you got 700 horsepower and now you got 680. It's a, It really hurts it. It cripples you technically. So we go up there. They didn't do it to anybody else. So we go up there, first race. We run second. We got spun out, backed in the wall. We come up the next race, we won. And we win like five out of the last 12 races. And the track owner told him, said, we're not doing anything else to him. So that was 95 or 96. And I told so. I quit running full time and we backed up to running like, we go to Kingsport and we got to run like eight or 10 races. In 99, the last race, they had a 200 lapper, local track up here, had a 200 lap race, paid big money and all. And it's Eddie Johnson and I can't remember if Curtis Markham, some of these people you all will know of, Philip Morris, um, some people that actually filtered into the bush and all that were up there. We win the race. And guess what they did? We qualified. They made us start. as like 28 cars there. Lynn Carroll says, you had to start in the back. I said, what? And he said, you're pulling some air in the front end. I said, what? you got to have your nose sealed off. You're sucking air to the carburetor. And, and I was, you know, I had, to, I had to pull down about that much is all. And I had, we had the 10 pulled down on what it done. The reason we got caught was, you know, you put your little aluminum thing around your air cleaner. Well, see, we had ours off because I didn't want that block in the front. I said, we'll get that little cool air from the nose. So what they done, they made us pin up, uh, pop rivet that front end up. Where, and he looked at for it and he said, you good. Made it start in the rear. We won the race, got to the front, won it. And when I got out, I told all my crew, I said, we're going to Martinsville next week, and I'm through. And they said, what? I said, y'all want to help somebody next year. I'm, I'm quitting. But guess who protested? I got, I was going to show you guys. I got the receipt, and I got the picture of it. We got protested after the race. We got out of the racetrack at 2 o'clock in the morning. We had to be to Martinsville on Thursday. They tore the motor apart. The officials were standing around us. Guess who protested? Wood Brothers. John Woods was driving. So I say Wood, but well, I call Wood, it was him. And Talmadge Thomas, I think, was the crew chief. You heard of this guy, Speedy Thomas' son. So they go up, 
after the race, and Lynn Carroll comes down. He said, "Pull your motor apart." I said, "What?" He said, "I said pull it apart, take a crankshaft and rod out of it, and they checked the carburetor and intake. They done checked the heads and intake four or five times through the year. Want to crank out of it?" And I said, "What? They're protesting your crank weight." And I still got, so they had to pay $500 to protest you. Well, if you passed, you get 400 back. The track keeps 100 and you get 400 back. Well, I got the receipt where the person's over the track then give me the $400 back <laughs> a couple of days later because we passed. Tore us down in there, John Woods, the crew chief and all, and I asked a track official, I said, who did they do this? And they said, no, Eddie Woods. They called when you won and said, Eddie said, put the money up. They think got an illegal motor. And I said, did they get the signal? said, yeah, he's got a lightweight crank. You had to be 55 pounds on the crank. And they had some kind of things, I don't know, illegal scales they'd had checked. It makes me wonder how much they knew ahead of time, and maybe they didn't, but it they checked it to the ounces, and it was like 55 point one, it was like an ounce or two to the good. And I left there and I said, man, you realize we have to be Martinsville? And he said, if they put the money up, we got to do it. So they did it. He said, you're wrong after they tore the motor apart. And I said, the motor's not wrong. He said, your wrist pins are 7,000 or something under. So I said, Lynn, why would you a wrist pin? 7,000, so if you're going to do something, you're going to, that ain't enough to make a difference on a wrist pin. We called the engine builder at 2 o'clock in the morning. The engine builder says, I've got the receipt. Got them from, um, uh, shoot, down there used to be Copenhagen Bunch that passed away. Benny Parsons drove for Jackson and Am. Richard and Leo Jackson. He said, I got, the, I got the invoice where I bought them, Ronnie. Those are legal pens. Told Lynn, he said, I'll go check them with my mics down to school. He was down at running some kind of uh, mechanical school down in Salem. So Ronnie Kelly comes, and he took one rod and one piston with him, Lynn. We was that Gail, you gotta realize, this is two o'clock when we get the shop and pull the, another piston out and go to, actually pulled all of them out. Went to Dale's shop, was there at nine o'clock the next morning. Dale had his bikes and all that, and he said, Lynn Carroll is wrong. These wrist pins are legal. We met Lynn Monday, and Lynn said, you don't have to tell me, I didn't check them over to shop he what he said it's legal so i said got it and hey guess what they had a big write up in the run of times thomas found illegal so that was on that was on it was so late saturday night that they didn't get in the paper on sunday on monday they put in there that i was illegal guess what i said are y'all gonna do a retraction it was about that big me being illegal the retraction was about that big you had to have friggin binoculars to read it and I called a track I said y'all had a friggin six by six thing in there I was illegal and you do a retraction it's like a two inch by two inch and I said wasn't right and he said you're never happy and I said no it I said I'm I'm through with this and they said that's whatever you want to do buddy and I just I left there and I went to Martinsville and 
we qualified in the uh, we qualified top 20 and Barry Beverly and um, Greg Marlowe qualified behind me and we got there late we didn't get much practice and I just want to show you how things changed from cup where you're getting out of the way Barry Beggarly and Greg Marlowe said we're just going to follow you up through there and I said listen if I'm in y'all's way you give me a little bump well I said I'm not worried about the first 20 laps because these guys they always wreck that freaking line. they start to race and 10 of them pile up I said the first few laps I'm just going to be I ain't worried about nothing the first part I'm just going to try to win this thing or get right up near the front and they said we'll just follow you up or guess what had a friggin wrecking from me I run right into it I mean it's just the way it is and it, I'm just saying I was talking about people watching there's a lot of people you get beat down and man I run in cup now and I couldn't understand I said I'm not getting the respect that I should get in cup but I look back now and maybe I didn't deserve any more respect than what I got because I didn't run well enough at times to get respect. But I heard Mark Martin here three or four years ago. He got on a stumble there. I don't know when it was. I guess back in the 80s or something. He said, all of a sudden we got, I think he was Jack Roush, but I'm not sure. But he said, I got off for a few races, and, man, we got to where we can went competitive. And he said, you know, I go to motel room, and I'm thinking, is it me? Am I not getting the job done? Of course, now, you know, it rotate around. I mean, Mark's pretty sharp on them chassis. You know, he's a heck of a driver. So I'm thinking, how would you feel if you had to do that year after year? At it? And it never got good. You know, we go to no more one. You know, I go to Bristol with Harry Hyde, and we qualified seventh. But, you know, you can't do that once and then run 20 sucky races because what happens is, you know, I run 197 races. Well, frick, when you got 180 that wasn't good, people ain't going to remember the 15 or 20 you run that you run good for 50 laps. It's too much bad to overshadow the little bit of good that you did do. Yeah. Harry Hyde was a case of. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was fun to be around. You know how much he'd come to Bristol and help me? He wasn't helping nobody that he was out of a job. He said, I'm going to come up Bristol and help you. I said, Harry, I can't afford you. <laughs> he said, I ain't gonna, you know how you had pretty rough talks. He said, can you afford $5? I went, what? And he said, I was at the service station on the phone, and paid phone, and he said, $5 get the track. He said, you pay my $5, and I'm going to help you. And he wow. helped me there and qualified seventh. And, of course, we fell out. Something happened to the car. And, you know, and then Herb Nabb helped me one race at Martin's Willie's down there. He just helped me for the day in practice. And so I got to be, I'm going to tell you a good one on her, Harry Hyde. You're going to like this one. <laughs> Y'all need it out what you don't want. <laughs> but we went, to, we went to Bristol, Richmond, with this car. This was 81 or 82. I'm going out there running, and this was a cut-down car. This was Richard Childress's old car. Monte Carlo, we ran it for years, and a guy ran it for two or three years at Tommy Crozier out of Run Oak after I sold it. But we, we cut the frame down. It was a 115-inch car, so we shortened it five inches. You remember in 81, they went to what they called right. the little cars. Well, we didn't buy a car. We just cut ours down to make it work, keep from buying a car. We go to Richmond, 81, 82, and we go out there practicing, and old Marshall with me, and, 
we had old tires on. We was about 17th fast out of about 33 cars. And Marshall said, man, that old car ain't bad. We changed a couple of things, changed a couple of things. We got up to about 14th. And I said, I'm going to buy a Dagblame set of new tires. We put them on. It went but about three or four cars quicker. And I said, Marsh, uh, we're going we're gonna to qualify this thing top five or six. And I go in the corner, and with Al's and any of them, I mean, these guys, Kalen was on top of things, and I go in the corner, and I could actually run up on them just a little bit in the center. I said, man, well, here comes Harry Hyde. He walks down, and he said, damn car's getting around track pretty fast, Ronnie. He said, you got tires? I said, yeah, I'm putting a set on it now. So I went and got a set, and I said, I don't want to run a much, I want to qualify. No, you need a set, and then we'll put a set on to qualify. I said, dang, I don't know. So I go out there and I run. We was about fourth or fifth fastest. I come in here and said, that freaking car's getting around the track, Ronnie. I said, I need to raise a track bar or something just to touch to get it just a little bit better to center. And he said, well, I'll tell you what to do for that. That's what he said, get, get back in the car. God's honest truth. He said, get back in the car. When you go in the third corner there, I want you to drive that much deeper. I said, I can't do it. He said, I said, get in the car and drive it that much deeper. I said, Harry, I'll wreck the car if I drive it any deeper. He said, I said, get your ass in the car and drive it in this much deeper. Do you want to be a race driver? And I said, get in the car. I get in the car. I go out there and I looked up when nobody, you know, had a little straight wheel in the back. I come out of, come out of four and I'm hauling down in one. I go to that third corner and I went in three or four foot deeper. I backed in the wall and put the back bumper about, short the back end up about that far, crushed the fuel cell. <laughs> Pulled me in there on the wrecker. I was sitting in the car, I didn't get out. I was sitting in the car on the wrecker, come in there, and he backed me in there. Harry, honest to God, it's funny. It's funny now, one thing. He said, I guess you're right. You couldn't drive it no deeper, could you? <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad then. But it, it's funny now, one thing. Yeah, I guess you're right. You couldn't drive it any deeper, could you? The spring in 1981, Ronnie is getting ready for Bristol and he is trying to set his car up. It's evidently at night. And so he takes that car for a little spin up Route 8 there in Christiansburg. Uh oh. <laughs> and he gets caught by the police. You think? And they throw the book at him. And I mean, this guy writes him up for everything he could possibly write him up for and then some, I think. <laughs> And I got to be honest, I thought I was going to rip a stitch when he said that you couldn't pay off judges now like you could back then. <laughs> Ronnie and I met at Stocks for Tots a couple of years ago, and we became friends on Facebook. So he had seen me posting about Jeannie being a judge and then her retiring at the end of the year. But when he said that, I think it was just a, an honest mistake. And that he wasn't trying to give me any kind of hard time about Jeannie and what she does for a living or what she did for a living, which I think made it even funnier. Well, I'm sure Ronnie never intended to uh, bring Jeannie into that conversation about paying off judges. <laughs> I just thought it was hysterical because not only did you and I catch it, the guys that are watching it, Dana and Jimmy, they caught it because I'm friends with them on Facebook too. Yeah. 
So we just had ourselves one big laugh over that. I thought that was great. I did too. I was there and I looked at you and when he talked about paying off touches and it was sort of lifted our eyebrows back and forth. <laughs> Ronnie did decide to get out of Winston Cup and he sold his car to the fast track driving school. And I did fast track for the first time at Atlanta in 1991. So after the offer that Ronnie made of me driving that nice show car that he has, I might already have driven one of Ronnie's Winston Cup cars. Well, you never know, Rick. You might have indeed. And I didn't even put a scratch on it. (laughs) (laughs) Racing on Saturday night short tracks was a much different beast than racing in Winston Cup. And when you're racing with guys with names like Six Pack, you better be ready to rumble. (laughs) Yeah. You're right about being different. I've been to the late model races as well, of course, the Winston Cup races. There is very little decorum when it comes to competition at that level Ronnie went to. There's some rough and tumble stuff, that's for sure. Man, if they don't get in a fight at Bowman Gray, there's something wrong. That's right. (laughs) People feel cheated. (laughs) (laughs) And Ronnie really did become king of the hill when he started racing late models. And again, that reminded me so much of my own story when I went over to cover the Bush series, because I really did feel like, like Ronnie, he became a bigger fish in a smaller pond. I felt that was the case for me when I went to cover the Bush series. When I first got to seeing David Green, the writer <laughs> and not the driver, handled all the Bush series coverage. But when he left the paper in 1996, it opened up that position. And I don't even think David was even called the Bush series editor. He was an associate editor. So the position was basically created officially when I took over. And I don't even know if you remember this, Steve, but you and I were flying back from a race somewhere near the end of the 96 season. And we were on a layover in some airport somewhere do not i have no idea what airport it was but i asked you what you thought of me going and covering the bush series as opposed to remaining in winston cup and i'll never forget what you said you said basically that if i wanted to continue covering winston cup exclusively that i would pretty much be one reporter out of maybe 20 or 30 who did so at the time. But if I covered the Bush series, I could pretty much have it to myself and I could become the Chris Economaki of the Bush series. That is exactly what the plan was back then, Rick. We had expanded our coverage of the Bush series, covered every one of the Bush series races, made it an entity unto itself inside the newspaper. It needed somebody to cover the series on a full-time basis. And I was thinking that you might just be that man. You know, it turns out I was right. Seriously, I really did take that to heart. But in my mind, I was going to be the Steve Wade or the Deb Williams or the Joe Whitlock of the Bush series. Which you became. And people recognized you <laughs> as the head man of the Bush series. Well, that and the dollar will buy me a copy of USA Today. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if that would buy it anymore. (laughs) But Steve, I loved, I loved covering that division. I loved the people who were in the Bush series at that time. They became almost like family. Jeannie called and told me that she was expecting. 
while I was on my way to Dover. And I was sitting in a Wendy's drive-thru in Annapolis, Maryland. <laughs> of course, it had something to do with food or whatever. <laughs> but I was sitting at a Wendy's drive-thru when I got that call. And she made me promise that I wouldn't tell anybody. And I didn't. I kept my promise that I wouldn't tell anybody until I got to the garage an hour or so later. <laughs> and I headed straight for the NASCAR hauler so I could tell John Darby. Well, why wouldn't you? You were going to be a proud papa. You had to let people know. That was big time news. But I'm telling you, that's what it meant to be a part of the Bush series. And that's what it meant to be a little bit bigger fish in a much smaller pond at that time. And I loved it. I really and truly did. You did an excellent job, Rick. As for Ronnie, when we asked all our questions and then some, we got to what I thought was a stopping point. And Ronnie was like, y'all want to talk some more? (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, he was serious. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We might have to bring Ronnie on the show again just for the heck of it or just to tell us about his memorabilia collection because, Steve, I'm still after that helmet that he has. I want that helmet. I'll take everything else. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports, so whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com, and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop, and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com, that's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Before we dig into the April 9th, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene, I wanted to start off with a quote that I found in the paper later that same year in the October 8th issue. And Ronnie can tell a funny story. And it's obvious that he loves to tell stories. But I really think that this really does speak to the caliber of driver that Ronnie Thomas was behind the wheel and the potential that he had and what other pretty doggone important people in the sport thought about him. The headline on this story is Johnson pegs Thomas as star of the future. And this is junior Johnson that we're talking about. Junior said in this story, I'll tell you one thing. If I had the capability of fielding a second car right now and could put any driver in it, I'd put Ronnie Thomas behind the wheel. I believe he's our sleeper right now in Grand National and that he will be one of the greatest drivers in the next 10 years. He's got all the skills and the natural instinct I look for in a driver. If he were in a competitive car right now, he'd be winning races. All right, that matches up exactly to what Ronnie's ambitions were. He didn't want to race the way he had to race. He wanted to race to win. And then when he took the chance going into late model stocks, look what happened. He was winning all the time. 
And I think that proved that Junior had a point about Ronnie's natural ability. Well, I'll tell you what, recommendations don't get any more powerful than that. No, they don't. Because Junior Johnson was a judge of talent. And Ronnie talked about Junior going to bat for him with the Budweiser people in the first installment of our interview with him. And with this quote in mind, I really believe that Junior really did want to put Ronnie in that car and that he was sincere in talking to the Budweiser people. I'd have no doubt he was. Absolutely. You know, if Junior said something like he just said in that quote, well, sure, he's going to follow up on it because he believes it. Junior Johnson was not one to blow smoke. No, I think that if Junior had the money, he would have put Ronnie in a car. But the funding to do that wasn't there. As for our issue of the week, the April 9th, 1981 edition of Grand National Scene, after after we started off last week's show talking about how journalists should never be part of the news story. Oh, here we go again. This week, you were the news, complete with a headline that read, Steve Wade named Grand National Scene executive editor, and it came with a photo. Well, what do you expect, Rick? I mean, it was me going to Grand National Scene. Now that's news, man. (laughs) (laughs) You said in this piece, I've written about everything from hot air ballooning to dog shows, but I've always found working with people in Grand National Racing the most rewarding. That was absolutely true. It's the people that made up the sport to me. Now I have to ask, you mentioned hot air ballooning and dog shows that you had covered while you, you were at Martinsville and Roanoke. What's the strangest event that you have ever covered? Wow. Well, the dog show. Or most out of your wheelhouse. I would go along with the dog show. That was (laughs) taking place in Salem, Virginia, right next door to Roanoke. And it was a big affair back then. I walked in there and there's hundreds of dogs of all shapes and sizes all over the place. And I had no idea what to write because I had no idea what they were doing. Finally, I settled into an idea about writing something humorous about a dog. So I went to this lady who had an English bulldog. And you've seen an English bulldog, right? So I talked with her a little bit about bulldogs, and I wrote a story about bulldogs. I described the bulldog as the gangster of dogdom. Put a hat on his head and a cigar in his mouth, and bingo, you got Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> well, that was a fun story, right? Well, I'll tell you what. I did cover a lot of different things when I worked at the newspaper in Sparta, but then after I got out of NASCAR, I did a lot of work for NCAA.com. Mm-hmm. And I honestly believe that I covered every collegiate sport in existence while I worked for them. With the exception of, I don't think that I ever did anything with rodeo. I never did anything with bowling. But other than that, (laughs) I covered lacrosse. I'd never been to a lacrosse match before. I covered field hockey. I covered golf. I covered tennis. And, of course, I'd seen tennis on TV, but I didn't know anything about it. I actually had to ask one of the officials to explain the difference between a game a set and a match. (laughs) But I think the thing that was working in my favor was the fact that I was just doing personality profiles. I wasn't actually covering 
the actual games necessarily. Yeah. I was just doing personality profiles about some of the student athletes that were there. And man, I got some of the most amazing stories I've ever written on some of the sports that I had never heard of before. Sport itself may not make for interesting reading because if you're not interested in a certain sport, you're not going to read about it. People across the spectrum can make for interesting reading because every person has a story. And if you find that story and bring it out, you're doing your job and the readers like it. Well, I think one thing that I went into it with was the idea that even though it wasn't familiar to me, I wasn't going to go into it and make fun of the sport because what those student athletes did and certainly what the, the coaching staff did and the, the families and the schools, they took it very seriously. Yeah. And so I wrote very seriously about the different features and everything. I thought, again, there's one in women's lacrosse that I will always remember. I mean, it was just an amazing story. I still remember the young lady's name. Her name was Mo Emil. Before we get too far into this, (laughs) at Roanoke, you had covered some NASCAR, but you had also been doing a lot of other things during the offseason. When you started at Grand National Scene, how much of an adjustment was it for you to do all NASCAR all the time? Well, not much because Rick at Roanoke, uh, uh, as you said, I was covering a lot of races. So I figured I was at 75% of full-time coverage anyway. Yeah. yeah. And the other 25% of the winter was mostly hockey, which I enjoyed covering as well. But when it came to seeing them, it was going to be NASCAR 100% of the time. That means that I had to go out and do even more stuff, more digging, and more accumulation of stories and information for the paper. It just wasn't that big of a leap. Like I said, 75% to 100%, you know, not that big of an adjustment. Now, when you were at Roanoke, how many races a year were you doing? About 20 to 25. Were you really? Okay. Yeah. I didn't make too many trips to California, although I did go there a couple of times. And up in the Northeast, like Pocono and Dover, seldom did I get there. But all the others, I went to at least once. Now, did you miss hockey at all? Yeah, sort of. But uh, hockey and Runk has been an off and on thing over the years. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so uh, uh, no, overall, I'm glad I just stuck with racing. In your column this week, you wrote about Ronnie Thomas's little encounter <laughs> with the authorities in Christiansburg. Ronnie said in your column, when that cop stopped me, he wrote me a ticket two miles long. He got me for disturbing the peace, having no muffler, no inspection sticker, no registration, and <laughs> improper equipment. Guilty <laughs> on all charges. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ronnie then added, and I don't know if he was trying to smart off or whatever, but he then added, I told him he wouldn't be able to tell what model car I had because it didn't have any taillights. I don't know if that was a smart move or not. No. <laughs> Because Ronnie added, darned if he didn't write me up for that too. (laughs) (laughs) I figured after that, I'd better shut my mouth or it might cost me a few more hundred dollars. Very good idea, Ronnie. (laughs) I believe that was a smart move. (laughs) You asked Ronnie why in the world he'd taken his race car out on the road. And he replied, I had just put springs on the car, but it had been sitting on jack stands for a week. 
the chassis didn't have any opportunity to settle and that was needed. So I figured the best way to do it was to take it out on the highway. It felt good running the car. I was on route eight headed toward Floyd. And I told the cop after he stopped me, (laughs) if I'd had softer tires on the car, he would have never caught me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't believe I would have said that either. (laughs) Now that would have been the ultimate road race. As for disturbing the peace, Ronnie said, those people who heard me driving around didn't mind it a bit. They thought it was funny as hell. You see, nothing exciting ever happens in Christiansburg. So when something like me running the race car occurs, it gets attention. Oh, I bet it is up there in Christiansburg, no doubt. You know, he's right. that not much goes on in Christiansburg. Ronnie was probably something of a celebrity driving that car around. <laughs> in other news that week. Richard Petty beat Bobby Allison to the finish line by 3.7 seconds to win at North Wilkesboro. Steve, this was his 15th win at North Wilkesboro overall. And in the spring race there, this to me is an absolutely crazy stat in the spring race. He had finished no worse than second going all the way back to 1970. I didn't know that. That's incredible when you think about it. No what, worse than second over a what? An 11-year period. Yes. No worse than second. And Steve, when I read that, and I believe Gene Granger wrote this race lead, when I saw that, I said, there is no way that can be accurate. But I went on racing reference, and sure enough, all the way back to 1970, the worst that he finished was second. And I think today, a lot of people see Richard as this incredible icon. And I mean, he's Richard Petty. So they know of his reputation, but maybe only vaguely. They only see the view from 30,000 feet. But down in the trenches, on the racetrack, in his heyday, Richard Petty really was the king. The thing about Richard was he could win anywhere. And the fact that he was so strong at North Wilkesboro had a lot to do with his experience at short tracks, both driving them and working with his father, Lee, at those tracks. Tracks like North Wilkesboro during the time that Richard was coming up, were the staple of NASCAR. Those are the tracks where everybody raced week in and week out, and he gained a lot of experience, and it paid off. You go back to these stats. No worse than second in 11 consecutive years in the spring race, and then in the fall, if you take out a couple of races where he was involved in some accidents, he fared no worse than fourth. (laughs) In that same time frame, the only team that could challenge Petty Enterprises on the short tracks was Junior Johnson's. Yeah. No matter who he had in the car, Bobby Allison, Cale Yarbrough, Dale Walter, when it came to the short tracks, including North Wilkesboro, Martinsville, Bristol, Richmond, Junior was tough, tough, tough at those tracks. And I recall Richard having some fine duels with Bobby Allison and with Kale and with Daryl on those tracks. They really lugged it out. 
this was also Richard's first win after Dale Inman had left the team earlier that season after the Daytona 500 that they won together. Richard said in the race lead, the track got slicker and the others slowed down, but our car kept working the same. When I finally got around to Allison, I knew we could win if nothing broke. I was happy we won for the crew. We knew we could win if things went our way. They did today, and it was good for team morale. I'm sure Dale was pulling for me since Earnhardt couldn't win the race. Richard also mentioned a handful of the new guys who were trying to break into Winston Cup, like Morgan Shepard, Butch Lindley, and Mark Martin. Richard said, (laughs) when they threw the flag today, there were three or four boys in front of me I'd never heard of. (laughs) They'd run good for 50 laps, and next time, maybe they'll run good for 100 laps. (laughs) Well, before long, he had heard of Morgan Shepard and Butch Lindley and Mark Martin. I can guarantee you that. I showed everybody else. (laughs) Butch Lindley dropped out of the race with a blown engine, but before that, he hadn't exactly been real happy with Bobby Allison. Butch said, I was in the thick of things, and it appeared that Bobby didn't think I was in the same lap. He ran all over me, and he should have showed more decency to me. I don't want to badmouth him, but I had a chance to win. If he wanted to race me, okay but not try to run over me. I know that I'm new at this game, but these guys won't be around forever. Butch was exactly right about that. That was a very good case of a veteran driver having a little respect or even disdain for a guy just breaking into the sport. I don't think that Bobby meant to deliberately push him out of the way, but he wasn't going to give him any space either. He was going to make his move basically by saying, get out of my way, kid. And that happened a lot. Well, to Butch's credit also, he didn't back down from Bobby. No, no. Bobby was there because he thought he should be there. And he didn't want this kid in his way. And Mark Martin, Mark qualified fifth for the very first Winston Cup race of his career in a car prepared by our friend Will Cronkite, but dropped a cylinder and had issues with the rear end. And Steve, we talked to Will about his time with Mark Martin in episode 123. You also worked with Mark Martin for a time in 1981. What was your impression of him that early in his career? I was really impressed. I didn't work with him at the racetrack. Our entire deal was I built him his first two cars. He he came to me and we built a uh, a Pontiac uh, Ventura probably, um, a, a Bush car, or an Xfinity class car, and it was it went it went fast, but he crashed it at Rockingham. I think that something happened at Daytona, and he ran at Rockingham, and sat on the pole, set a track record, and crashed. And then he um, hit one of his sponsors from Arkansas wanted to put him in a Cup car, and he came back and wanted to know if I would build him a cup car and in writing a book I spent a little bit of time talking with him and I said what made you pick me to build your car and he he said he'd heard some good things but he didn't want a name brand fabricator spouting what he wanted to do to his car I don't know if he want me to tell everything we did to that car but <laughs> he he was an extremely um 
creative. He he knew what he wanted and he knew why. And he, he told me he was a little surprised that I balked, didn't balk at any of his ideas. And I told him I didn't balk at any of them because I agreed with all of them. I, I liked what Mark was doing and I thought we got along really well. He went to this, such a degree for weight distribution that he hand ground things like the rear end housing and some other things and and he made and he yeah. made things lighter the car only had two gauges in it a water temperature gauge and an oil pressure gauge the pedals were on the ground we made two battery boxes for adjustments and uh when it was said and done when, when that car went through inspection the first time it had 606 pounds of lead in it <laughs> okay it was a creative car. Yeah. I, th I was very impressed, still am. Just how creative was it? Very. <laughs> I, okay. It wasn't right. my car, you know. I'm, I'm <laughs> okay, I understand. I understand. Mark completed 166 laps before having to get out of the car, and he was credited with a 27th place finish. Mark said, at the time when we lost that cylinder, it was hard to keep up and the race seemed to get longer and longer, man, that smoke from the rear end has left a bad taste in my mouth. I am worn out. I could hardly breathe and I had to call it quits. I know exactly what he's talking about because at that time in the years before burning up rear end gears at the short track was not an unusual experience. And you could tell when it happened because the smell <laughs> would be all over the place, even through the pits. And you, you didn't have to look out on the track. All you had to say was, well, somebody's lost a rear end. I can smell it. Well, I think this was also well before Mark's commitment to physical fitness, because after that happened, Mark Martin would not have gotten out of the car. <laughs> no. Not, would not, not have gotten out of the car. Not the mark of later years, no. Either that or it would have had been really, really, really bad for him to get out. Darrell Waltrip and Junior Johnson brought a car to North Wilkesboro that Junior had reportedly designed and built himself. Now, the new car gave them a few problems during practice and qualifying, and Darrell started seventh and finished third. Now, that's pretty good for having problems. With a brand new car, by the with, way. With a brand new car, but for Junior Johnson at North Wilkesboro, starting seventh and finishing third, that ain't good enough. Not when compared to the standard that Junior Johnson had built at the short tracks. A source, <laughs> a quote unquote source <laughs> <laughs> said that Junior wanted to build the car himself rather than buying it from Banjo Matthews because everybody caught up with Banjo. So Junior wanted something different. This car is offset to the left and Junior says it will be the car of the future. When everybody catches up to this car, Junior will build something different again. According to this news item, the car was designed to place weight toward the left of the chassis center line in order to improve handling. And the source said the car is supposed to be better as far as caster and camber goes. It looked good on paper, but sometimes I wonder if the paper didn't lie. It's good on a big track, anywhere but on a tight cornering track like Wilkesboro. Well, it may not have worked in that particular race, but I think we'll find out it did work pretty well afterward. 
I don't know what was actually going on with that car, <laughs> but Daryl and Junior and Jeff Hammond and Mike Hill and the rest of that team, Steve, they went on to win the next five races <laughs> at North Wilkesboro. So there was some genius in Junior's madness. Huh? <laughs> so they were on to something with that race car, evidently. <laughs> they won five races in a row. I mean, that's just amazing. North Wilkesboro had this qualifying setup where the pole was determined by the best average speed over two days and two laps of time trials. Now, that Steve, I don't remember that at all. That, that was unique to North Wilkesboro. Was it? Yeah, several tracks, particularly short track, tried some kind of qualifying scheme to make it more interesting for the people in attendance. Bristol, for example, once did an all-day qualifying in which a team could pick what part of the day it wanted to go out and qualify. It was open all day for that. Martinsville used to have qualifying on a Thursday for the top 10 only. And that was done because Claire Earls wanted to make some headlines going into the weekend. So North Wilkesboro decided to make two rounds of qualifying more meaningful by not awarding the poll on the first day, but taking the average of the two daily speeds, making it something interesting and something the competitors had to work a little bit extra to win. The poll sitter for this race was Dave Marcus. <laughs> And this was his first poll since Talladega in August of 1976. Del Earnhardt qualified second for Osterlin Racing. And afterward, Dave Marcus said, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy we beat that roly-poly guy. <laughs> referring to Osterlin's team manager, Roland Wilotica. You think they were not best friends? <laughs> Well, David quit Osterlin Racing at the end of the 1978 season because he and Roland, well, let's just say they didn't see eye to eye on much of anything <laughs> at all. No, period. and that's, a, that's the reason, as you said, that's the reason Dave got out of there. Dave has always been true to his feelings. If he doesn't like something, he says they didn't like it. If he likes it, he says he likes it. No middle of the road for Dave. Gene Granger wrote the qualifying story in sidebar in this issue. And he asked Dave if he could use the roly poly quote. <laughs> and Dave <laughs> said, hell yeah, <laughs> but it has nothing to do with the rest of that team. I get along fine with the rest of them. <laughs> All right. Speaking of fighting in the pits, <laughs> Dave went on to lead four times for a total of 123 laps in the race but he finished in fourth place. Dave said after the race, if we only had the money to buy as many new tires as those high book teams, we ain't got the money. We'd have stood a much better chance of keeping up if the race had stayed green. We couldn't afford to put on four new tires every time a caution came out. When Bobby Allison took on those new tires the last stop, he could run away from me before we could race with him. That was a particularly tough situation for independent teams, tires. They just could not afford to pay for big stacks of new tires. And that gave the big teams, the funded teams, a huge advantage. Try this one on for size, Steve. <laughs> Gene Granger wrote in his column that hotel rooms costing $60 a night 
were par for the course in a lot of places and that the cost of covering the sport had tripled in less than five years. $60 a night. <laughs> if I could find that now, I wouldn't pay it. <laughs> no. Because I do not want to stay in a $60 a night hotel anymore. No way, no, no how. Either you're going to come out with bed bugs or you're going to get robbed. One or the other. <laughs> there was a scene on the circuit item reporting that Dick Beatty had sat down with both Joe Milliken and Benny Parsons following an incident that had taken place between the two at Bristol. On lap 417 at Bristol, Benny spun after contact from Joe. And under the caution, the two cars again got together this time with the rear of Benny's car crunching the right front quarter panel of Joe's car. Joe then responded <laughs> by cruising very slowly around the track. And as Benny went into the first turn, Joe drove into him and forced him into the wall. And Steve, this was Benny Parsons. Right. Mr. Nice guy. I saw that whole incident. And yeah, you're talking about Benny Parsons, Mr. Nice guy. And you're talking about Joe Milliken. Another really nice guy. On that last incident, Joe lost his temper and drove into Benny and drove him right into the wall. To me, that just proves once again that when you're in the heat of competition, there are no nice guys. <laughs> and any driver at any time who thinks he has been wronged is going to respond. That's the nature of their competitiveness. Joe Milliken said in the April 2nd, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene, I started under him coming off the second turn and accidentally spun him out. Then he hit me off at of number four under caution. I hit him back in the first turn and drove him into the wall. I lost my cool. Now, of course, Benny gave his side of the story and said, we touched and I spun out. I lost a lap. Then I see him running up on me under the caution. He ran into me between the third and fourth turns. I didn't hit him. So... Again, Benny Parsons getting hot under the collar. I would not have seen that coming. Nor would anybody else. But in the heat of competition, as I said earlier, these guys aren't the same kind of people they normally are. At North Wilkesboro, Dick Beatty brought them in, sat them down, and heard it each side of the story. By that time, everybody had cooled off. Everybody shook hands, and that was that. And there were no fines or probation for either driver because, again, they didn't have a history of this kind of thing. No. And when they calmed down and became themselves again, they realized there was nothing going to be gained by carrying this on. So they decided part ways and as friends. There was a feature on Nick O'Lea, who was the gas man for Halpern Racing and David Pearson at the time. Nick got his start in the sport by writing a letter to Roger Penske. And he started out basically as a gopher, but worked his way up the ladder. And in this feature, he was asked what advice he would have for anybody wanting to get into the sport. And Nick said, to put it simply, keep your mouth shut, your eyes open, and work your butt off. No truer words have ever been spoken. Nick hit it right on the head. I can't tell you how many young men have come into racing willing to sacrifice just to do anything to get into the sport and how many of them have come up through the ranks doing it that way. And now we can look at a whole slew of them who are now recognized stars in the sport. But a lot of them started out the same way. 
that called up somebody and said, I'll do anything to get in this sport. That was it. Keep your mouth shut, your eyes open, work your butt off. That would work. Or you could just plaster a bunch of bumper stickers on the inside pit wall at Bristol saying, hire Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Evidently that worked too. (laughs) Sandy Estep, this one's for you. I'm Kyle Petty, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, like every week, we have gotten some absolutely amazing feedback on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. It's just been amazing, Steve. Last week, our friend Justin Hall on Twitter, at Justin Time, he tweeted to Marcus Lamonis and saved the Speedway. <laughs> Can we make the scene vault a permanent studio and museum, sort of like Darlington has? the NMPA Hall of Fame. You can name it the Rick Houston Studio and the Steve Wade Hall of Fame. <laughs> that would be perfect. <laughs> I like that. Great idea. Justin, your check's in the mail, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, that was in response to all the news that North Wilkesboro hopefully is coming back and the influence that Marcus Lamonis is going to play in that and what Marcus Smith at SMI is doing. Steve, again, we've talked about it in the past. I hope that something does happen there and that they can at least run some kind of racing there. And as far as Marcus Lamonis and a Hall of Fame and a studio and all that, I just want to get the deal done with the scene vault. (laughs) I'm not going to get greedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right, Rick. I would like to see racing in some form return to North Wilkesboro. I hope it does. It's going to take a lot of hard work and unfortunately a lot of money. And then I received this incredible message on my LinkedIn account. I don't do LinkedIn a lot. Don't update it a lot, but I still get messages every once in a while from different people but Michael Cooper has experienced some pretty serious health issues recently. And he wrote me and said, if I could focus on something, it would give me some relief. Well, your podcast and YouTube videos helped me relax and not go crazy. What you and Steve do helps people like you will never know. That kind of feedback is just absolutely stunning to me because again, when you and I started this podcast and it's been almost three years ago now, I think you and I were surprised that anybody listened. (laughs) Well, it's true. But Michael comes back with this just amazing message about some of the things that he was going through and to say that we had at least some small part in helping him get through that. That was amazing. So, Michael, thank you from the bottom of my heart for those very kind words. And first and foremost, get well, my friend. Get well, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Those were really, really humbling words for me as well. And I echo Rick and hope you get well soon. So if you do have any questions or comments, reach out to us on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever. You can hit us up on Patreon, send us a direct message there, wherever. 
If you have any questions or comments, email us at scenevault at yahoo.com and we will get back to you as soon as we possibly can. A source, a quote unquote source, <laughs> said that you. So, class over. Jesse will be along directly. Okay. Where's Otis today? I, I shut him out of the room. Oh, okay. There he is. What's up, big dog?